So uh, before we get started, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, another day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship with the body of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, study your word, learn more uh, about you, and learn more of what you require of us, how we can live lives that are pleasing to you, that glorify you. And just pray that there will be no error today and that your word would accomplish its purposes. Right in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, if I didn't say that already to you. This morning we're going to begin this series, uh, Everyone's a Theologian, Discerning Truth from Error. And I don't know how many of you think of yourselves as theologians, maybe a few of you do, but uh, I'm pretty sure the average guy or gal on the street does not think of themselves as a theologian. And when I say that everyone's a theologian, I'm not saying that everyone's been to seminary or Bible college, that, that should be evident, or that everyone's read or studied the many volumes on theology and Bible doctrine that are out there. So why is everyone a theologian? And literally, everyone is a theologian. Basically, it's because everyone has acquired some knowledge <clears throat> Of God, some knowledge of man, morality, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, angels, demons, <clears throat> and so on. Everyone has acquired some knowledge of those things or about those things, however accurate or full of error that knowledge may be. And then everyone lives their lives based on that knowledge, or they make theological statements and assertions about those things. Uh, that they either accurately or inaccurately understand. So I'm going to give you a few examples of theological statements that either demonstrate good or bad theology. This is a fairly simple test, and if you want to uh, participate, you can give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down for good or bad theology. So, God is sovereign, and all things are under his control. Yes, very good. So far, we're doing well. God is sovereign, but he had nothing to do with the tsunami of 2004 that killed over 200,000 people. <clears throat> Jesus is the only way of salvation. All paths lead to heaven. Oh, man, you guys are getting 100%. We don't need to do this class. We're all sinners and deserve death and hell. People are basically good. Yes. God is merciful and just. God is love and would never send anyone to hell. That's right. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Follow your heart. Yes. My son is an angel and would never steal from another student. So I keep waiting to hear that from a parent during parent-teacher conferences so I can respond with a really sound theological statement. Your son is an angel. Well, so is Satan. So you get the picture. Good theology versus bad theology. Everyone's a theologian, but the fact is most people are really bad theologians. Obviously, that is not the case here, but over the next 12 weeks, we're going to help everyone here become even better theologians. <clears throat> and we're going to begin, first of all, with some definitions, so we're all starting on the same page here. First of all, theology. What is theology? Theology is the study of God, and more specifically, Christian theology is the study of everything that God 
has revealed to us in Scripture. David Wells, well-known theologian, gives this definition of Christian theology. Theology is the sustained effort to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God as he has disclosed and interpreted these for his people in Scripture. In order that we might know him, learn to think our thoughts after him, live our lives in this world on his terms, and by thought and action project his truth into our own time and culture. Now, there are several branches of theology, but this study, next 12 weeks, is going to be focusing on systematic theology. So what is systematic theology? Systematic theology, simple definition from Wayne Grudem is, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? And that involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics, basically taking the whole counsel of God's Word as it applies to one particular topic or area of doctrine. And then you summarize those teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. MacArthur goes on to say, the ordered exposition of Christian doctrine, that's systematic theology. Doctrine is teaching specifically what the Bible teaches about a particular topic. So that's systematic theology. That's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to be looking at areas where um, some people don't dig real deep, some areas where definitely are some misconceptions or misunderstandings about particular doctrines. So these Bible topics now are categorized in systematic theology under other ologies like Christology, that is the study of Christ, Um, Hamartiology, that's the study of sin, Anthropology, the study of man, Soteriology, the study of salvation, and Angelology and Demonology. You can guess what that's about. So now the next question is, why study systematic theology? What are the benefits of studying systematic theology? Why not just read the Bible from... Genesis to Revelation, okay? So first of all, it's a very efficient use of time and resources. Rather than doing what I just said, every time you have a question or somebody comes to you with a question about a particular doctrine, you don't have to go from Genesis to Revelation to find out what Scripture says about that topic, what all of Scripture says about that topic. You can take advantage of the work that's already been done by others in finding those answers. So it serves as a resource, a really efficient resource for teaching, teaching yourself and teaching others Bible doctrine. And that's one of the things that Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 28, 20 in the Great Commission uh, regarding making disciples. He says, as we're going out, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And all that Jesus commands us is not just what we find in the red letters in the New Testament, but all of Scripture. So it's an efficient resource for teaching. Second, it can help us correct any wrong ideas we may have about a particular topic or doctrine. So it serves as a guard against false doctrine or error, and hence the subtitle, 
discerning truth from error in uh, our study of systematic theology. Third, it'll help us make better, more biblical decisions, particularly when confronted with moral questions or challenges to our faith. And even in the daily choices that we make, uh, it will inform our ethics, forms and guides our ethics. Wayne Grudem says this, uh, in every area of inquiry, certain theological principles will come to bear, every area of inquiry. And those who have learned well the theological teachings of the Bible will be much better able to make decisions that are pleasing to God. And just qualify that. We're never going to learn all that Scripture says about everything, all the depth and the many facets of a particular doctrine. That is a lifelong process, maybe even into eternity. But um, studying systematic theology uh, helps promote that more quickly and efficiently. And then finally, it'll help us to grow to maturity as Christians. The more we know about God, about his word, about his relationships with the world, and humankind, the better we will trust him, the more we will fully praise him, and the more readily we will obey him. Studying systematic theology rightly will make us more mature Christians. And if it doesn't do that, then we're not studying the way God intends for us to study. If you're just studying to acquire knowledge, uh, you'll become a Pharisee. So we study systematic theology, we study the doctrines in Scripture in order to know God more intimately and walk in obedience to Him, live lives that please Him and glorify Him. Now, the fact is the Bible often connects sound doctrine with maturity in Christian living. Paul speaks of the teaching that accords with godliness in 1 Timothy 6.3. He says that his work as an apostle is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in Titus 1.1. And then by contrast, he indicates that all kinds of disobedience and immorality are contrary to sound doctrine. So sound doctrine, uh, knowing what Scripture teaches on all of these topics is very important. Those are just a few of the reasons for studying systematic theology, and on your study guide, I've listed uh, on the back side a number of good texts that you can add to your library, and the the number of texts on theology by really good authors is almost limitless, and I'll I'll add more uh, each week. Uh, so that you can pick and choose, and even on particular topics like uh, theology proper, the doctrine of God, um, whole books have been written on the topic of uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Now, one of the conditions or assumptions for the Christian study of theology and the various Christian doctrines is that it must come from and be based on Scripture. So the first doctrine we will consider is the doctrine of Scripture. And the fancy theological word for that, theology, is bibliology. What does Scripture teach us about Scripture? In MacArthur's theology, he says, the doctrine of Scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source of all Christian truth. Over and over again, Scripture claims to be the word of God, 
Old Testament prophets affirm this, and Christ and the apostles build all of Christian teaching on Scripture. 2,500 times the Old Testament says that God spoke what is written. Genesis 1-3, and God said, Isaiah 1-2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Malachi 4.3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. From beginning to end throughout the Old Testament, the claim is, this is the word of God. And the phrase, the word of God, is used 40 times in the New Testament, referring to the Old Testament. It was what Jesus preached, Luke 5.1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, it's what Jesus preached, and it was what the apostles preached as well. Scripture affirms that it is not the religious writings of man, but is in fact given by God, its own self-affirmation. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy of Scripture, I'm sorry, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this brings us to the first aspect or the first point of the doctrine of Scripture, which is inspiration. Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God as Timothy says in the ESV translation. This is a definition of inspiration. God, through his spirit, inspired every word penned by the human author in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. Inspiration describes the process of divine causation behind the authorship of Scripture. It refers to the direct act of God on the human author that resulted in the creation of a perfectly written revelation. It conveys the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit whereby he used the individual personality, language, style, and historical context of each writer to produce divinely authoritative writings. Basically, God superintended the writing of Scripture through human authors to record record the exact words that he wanted recorded. So how can we be certain that the words of the Old Testament and New Testament are God's words? As mentioned before, the Old Testament identifies its writings thousands of times as the words of God, and repeatedly a text will state, God said, Exodus 17, 14 is an example, or the words of the God of Israel, Ezra 9, 4, or in Psalm 119, 24 times, it refers to Scripture as the words of the Lord. And 175 times, it praises the Word of God using different synonyms. Prophets would announce, hear the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 22:19, for example. So the Old Testament also records direct speech from God, <clears throat> not just affirming that it is the Word of God, but it records direct speech, and this is throughout the opening of Genesis. Uh, There are conversations and commands to individuals that are also recorded, Abram, Moses, uh, Joshua, to name a few. 
And then the Old Testament records prophetic speech from God through his prophets. Moses was told to speak to Pharaoh for God with the statement, thus says the Lord, Exodus 4.22. And it's repeated by Joshua in Joshua 7.13, Gideon in Judges 6, 7 through 18, Samuel in 1 Samuel, and Nathan in 2 Samuel, and all the other prophets in the Old Testament. So we also have to consider how Jesus viewed the scriptures of the Old Testament. He considered, or rather he knew that it was the word of God. He knew that he spoke the words of God, and he appealed to the authority of the Old Testament. One example of that particularly is when he's in his confrontation with Satan in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He quoted the Old Testament when settling matters of faith and obedience, particularly with the Pharisees. One example is when he was challenged about divorce. He replied uh, by referring to Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 24. And many times, Jesus would ask, have you not read? And then he would refer to an Old Testament passage to make his point, which indicates his recognition of Scripture's authority. Jesus also speaks of the truthfulness of Scripture. John 17, 17, he says, your word is truth, referring to the scriptures. And he referred to numerous historical accounts as factual. Flood, creation. <clears throat> In addition, uh, he makes the point, Jesus makes the point, that the smallest detail in scripture will be fulfilled and it's eternal in nature. It's Luke 16, 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void Matthew 5, 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And the law is a reference to Old Testament scripture, all of it. Um, the New Testament now also gives clear indication that it is also the inspired word of God. It records many examples of God speaking to people directly, uh, Christ's baptism and Christ's transfiguration. For example, Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then in Mark 9, 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Revelation, Jesus gives John instructions regarding the seven churches. And in a number of cases, Jesus' words are considered the word of God. John 3, 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. In John 6, 68, Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and only God has the words of eternal life. The apostles also understood that what they spoke and wrote were the inspired words of God. Paul says that God is speaking through him in addressing the churches, 2 Corinthians 13, 2 through 3. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. 
He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The apostles spoke the word of God. Peter also identifies Paul's writings as scripture, and he implies that the other authors are inspired as well in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul also acknowledges apostles and others in the early church as inspired. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 5, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is now, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So those examples are just a few of the proofs of inspiration uh, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both to be considered God's inspired word, his inspired scriptures. And I'll repeat those first two passages that were mentioned. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, someone's own interpret, interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So throughout Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the Word of God attests to itself as being from God, as being the very words of God. Now, I want to move on to the next point in the doctrine of Scripture. <clears throat> and again, let me say this. I, I really uh, would uh, urge you to pick up uh, a good theology text like Grudem's or MacArthur's, in particular, Duncan Culver, also listed on your study sheet, because they will go into great depth and also uh, the work of the Spirit in confirming in believers the truth and veracity of Scripture, the fact that Scripture is inspired. We don't have time to touch on all of those, um, all of those different details of inspiration, but this will get you started in that direction anyway. So now moving on to the next point. Um, that is that Scripture is inerrant and infallible, and I want to quickly define those terms. You probably understand inerrancy means without error. <clears throat> and when speaking of the inerrancy of Scripture, we mean that because Scripture, because Scripture is inspired by God and its writings are superintended by Him, the Bible is without error in its original copies. Therefore, it is free from affirming anything that is untrue or contrary to fact. And infallibility means that Scripture is unable to mislead or fail in its intended purposes, God's intended purposes. So simply put, the Bible always tells the truth about everything it speaks about. It doesn't mean that Scripture 
uh, gives us every detail of every fact there is to know about a particular subject, but whatever it says about any subject is absolutely true. And that's a non-negotiable, non-negotiable, as are really all the points of the doctrine of Scripture. Since the words of Scripture are God's inspired words, they are directed by Him, superintended by Him, He is the God of truth, then Scripture must be without error. Inspiration deals with, this is a quote from MacArthur, inspiration deals with the means by which the text was composed, but it also directly implies that it is the work of God, and such, as such, the final product is attributed to him. Regardless of the involvement of human agency in the composition process, the integrity of the divine author is at stake in the doctrine of inerrancy. And Grudem says, especially relevant at this point are those scripture texts that indicate the total truthfulness and reliability of God's words. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. That's Psalm 12, 6. That, that indicates the absolute reliability and purity of scripture. And similarly, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, Proverbs 20 or 35. That indicates the truthfulness of every single word that God has spoken. Though error and at least partial falsehood may characterize uh, the speech of every human being from time to time, it's the characteristic of God's speech even when spoken through sinful human beings that it is never false and that it never affirms error. error. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. That's Numbers 23, 19, and that was spoken through sinful Balaam, specifically about prophetic words that God had spoken through his own lips. That's sinner Balaam. So because Scripture is God's word and God is the God of truth, the source of all that is true, Everything recorded in Scripture is true and must be regarded as such. And that applies to historical <clears throat> accounts from creation to the flood to the parting the Red Sea to the resurrection of Lazarus. It applies to all moral and ethical commands and requirements. It applies to all future events prophesied from the judgments of Revelation to Christ's return on a white horse, to the establishment of his kingdom on earth and the fulfillment of all the promises in the covenants. On the other hand, if we deny inerrancy, even in the smallest detail, then we open ourselves to a multitude of problems. First and foremost, we fall into that same satanic lie that the serpent challenged Eve with. Did God actually say that? Or you will not surely die? We question the truthfulness of God's word, and we call God a liar. If we doubt inerrancy, we are saying or implying that God is capable of communicating untruths, even if they're small. So if God can communicate untruths, does that mean we can communicate untruths? Furthermore, if there is anything in Scripture, if there's anything 
where God may be speaking falsely or where there is error, even in minor matters, then we can't trust him in anything. We can't trust anything in God's word. And if we can't trust him or God's word, then we're under no obligation to obey or believe a God who would lie or deceive us or allow error. And if that's the case, then all hope is lost. We also set ourselves, our minds, our judgment above God's self-affirming word, which means we're saying we know better than God's word, or essentially, we know better than God himself. We make ourselves to be God. So we don't want to go there. We don't want to go down that road because God's word is inspired and superintended by him. We can be confident that it is without error. And just a few more scriptures that affirm that. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said that. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. Proverbs 30, 5 through 6, every word of God proves true. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus was the incarnate word. In John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then Hebrews 6, 17, and 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God is a God of truth, and his word is true, so we can trust him, we can trust his word. God doesn't lie, so we can hold fast to the hope set before us. Next point in the doctrine of Scripture is the authority of Scripture. Basically, Scripture has authority because God's It's God's word, and God has authority. Definition of authority is power or right to enforce obedience, moral or legal supremacy, the right to command or give a final decision, and the New Testament word for authority, which is exousia, means power exercised by rulers or others in high position by virtue of their office. Now, the world... Uh, has a lot of different ideas about the nature and extent of authority, but Scripture makes it clear that ultimate authority is possessed by God alone. He didn't inherit that authority. Nobody gave it to him. He didn't take it from somebody. All authority and the right to exercise that authority has always, from eternity past into eternity future, belonged to God. And there's a couple points that should make God's authority evident. Why does he have authority? Aside from the fact that he is God. First of all, he created all things. He created everything that exists. Everything in the universe, the earth and everything in and on the earth, all creatures, including mankind, all was created by God. We know that from Genesis 1 and 2. Next, because God created created everything, he owns everything. Psalm 24, 1, 
the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to God. So it follows then that because God created everything, because God owns everything, everything belongs to God, he can do whatever he pleases with it. He can do whatever he chooses to do with it. And in the end, God will consume or cleanse everything in creation with fire because he has the authority and right to do just that. 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Because God possesses all authority, he has the right to delegate authority. We see that in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So all authority proceeds from God. God possesses all authority, and there are many, many passages in Scripture that affirm that. Psalm 62, 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. In 2 Chronicles 26, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And the New Testament then goes on to declare that authority, all authority, uh, not only belongs to God, but it's given to God the Son, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Philippians 2:10. so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Jude 25 to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, <clears throat> now, because God possesses all authority, his words, his commands, his decrees, his instructions are to be obeyed. And because Scripture is the divinely inspired, God-breathed, inerrant, infallible word of God, not man's words. Because Scripture is the very word of God, it derives its authority from God's authority. Scripture possesses authority because God possesses authority. Therefore, to refuse to submit to the authority of Scripture... is to refuse to submit to the authority of God, to disobey or rebel against the commands, the injunctions and instructions, or even to disbelieve, even to disbelieve what is revealed in Scripture is to disbelieve God. And Scripture makes this point by condemning those who reject the authority of God's Word and commending those who submit to and honor His Word. Jeremiah 8, 8 through 9, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? And Mark 7, 6 through 9, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the, can- the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's condemnation. But then in Nehemiah 8, 5 through 6, <clears throat> says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground because they had discovered the word of God and were reading it to the people. In Revelation 3.8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are just a a few examples of commendation for honoring and obeying God's word. So again, everything in Scripture, all the words of Scripture, are the words of God, and therefore they possess the authority of God. So to refuse to believe or obey anything in Scripture is to refuse to obey or believe God. Scripture is the very word of God. It was divinely inspired. God breathed, superintended by God through human authors. It is without error, absolutely true, unable to mislead. It accomplishes God's purposes, and it's authoritative because it's God's word and is to be honored and obeyed as such. Now, the final point in this doctrine of Scripture the final point that we'll cover today there are many points in the doctrine of Scripture. These are the primary ones, the basic ones. Final point that we'll look at this morning is the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency means Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, all the words we need for trusting Him perfectly, all the words we need for obeying Him perfectly. We don't need to look anywhere else for words from God. We don't need to look anywhere else to learn about him or to know his will for us. God has given us everything in Scripture that he wants us to know about him and about what he requires of us. What he has given us in Scripture is enough for us, and we should be content with what he has provided. We don't need an extra biblical word from the Lord. We don't need to hear Jesus calling. We don't need signs and wonders. Scripture is sufficient. And there's many passages that support this point. Paul's instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15 regarding salvation and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And sacred writings refer to Scripture, and it is in Scripture that God shows us the way of salvation. Other passages also say this, James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living an abiding word of God. And other passages show us that Scripture is sufficient to guide us 
in living a life that is pleasing to God or equipping us to walk in obedience to God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us his word to equip us for every good work, every good work, so that we uh, may be complete. That's pretty comprehensive. Every good work and complete through the word of God. So if there's a good work that God wants us to do, he's given us what we need in the word to train us for that purpose. Whatever God requires of us, he's revealed it to us in his word. There's no good work that God wants us to do that's not revealed in Scripture. Psalm 119.1 says something similar to 2 Timothy. It says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Those who are blameless are those who walk in the law of the Lord, who are obedient, and that's synonymous with the word of God, the law of the Lord. Everything that God wants us to do, everything he requires of us is written in Scripture. If we are doing all that God requires, we will be blameless before him. So what do we have to do to live a life that's morally blameless and pleasing to God? Whatever is revealed in his word. On the other hand, if it's not revealed in Scripture, if it's not required, if it's not commanded, if it's not forbidden, then God doesn't require it of us. So let's be sure that we don't add to what God has revealed or required. His word is sufficient. And just a few more passages that support that point. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And in 2 Peter 1, <clears throat> 3 through 4, we were going over this in my men's group on Thursday night. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that scripture, so that through them you may become <clears throat> partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All things have been granted to us that pertain to life and godliness in Christ, the incarnate word, and we, come, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become Christ-like through the Spirit's application of his precious and great promises, through the application of his word to our hearts, the application of Scripture, his written word. God's word is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. So those are the four main points um, in the doctrine of Scripture. Again, there are many more. Uh, the doctrine of preservation, <clears throat> how did the canon of Scripture come to be, uh, internal witness of the Spirit regarding um, the Scriptures, and many more. Read. Uh, get one of those theology texts and do your research. This is the launch point for you. Um, next week, Jessica from uh, James's team will be speaking to us, so uh, we won't be meeting 
um, won't be continuing uh, until the following week. And that following week, I'll be in Seattle. So Roman will be teaching on the incommunicable attributes of God. We'll get into theology proper, the doctrine of God, and the incommunicable attributes are those attributes that God does not share with us. They are exclusive to God. So hopefully we'll see you back here in two weeks. Are there any questions? Yes, dear. That's my wife. And the most, well, I would, well, inerrancy was a huge issue maybe 20, 30 years ago. That, I believe, has been resolved within evangelical circus, circles. Now, sufficiency, I think, is probably what is under attack the most. People go elsewhere. People want extra biblical experiences. Scripture is not enough. Um, and that's why you see so many uh, books that are being written. And I think that Jesus is calling. Jesus calling is one of those examples. Yeah, sufficiency. Anybody else? Charlie. But just the fact that, um, a th that Scripture is the Word of God, God possesses authority, therefore His Word possesses authority. So um, just like the laws that we obey on the street, okay, um, it's not the actual law itself, but that law comes from a legislative body that has the authority to impose punishments or rewards. So if you disobey a speed law out here, which comes from a legislative body in Sacramento, you're going to you know, pay a fine or go to jail or whatever. So in that, in that way, Scripture is, has derived authority, but it also attests to the fact that it has authority. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean, but I'll talk to you afterwards, okay? I may clarify that. All right, we need to wrap it up, Crossway Cafe, and that's all. See you back in two weeks.